All right. Um, grab your Bibles and uh, open them, if you will, to First um, Kings four. But before I read my text, um, I want to remind you of something that I, I'm, I'm quite sure you don't remember. Uh, it, it doesn't hurt my feelings too badly. But uh, it was something that I said last week. Um, and by the way, we're not doing Ruth this morning. You know that. We, we set everything aside for this. But last week, in the, in the introduction to the book of Ruth, I said that Old Testament stories are to be understood on three levels. Remember that? Old Testament stories, all Old Testament stories are to be understood on three levels. The first level is the level of just the, the pure factual event, the description of the, uh, the thing that took place in time and space. That's the first level. And so many people stop there and they look for the moral of the story and, and, and they miss out on the beauty. Um, the, the second level of all Old Testament stories is that those stories are a part of the larger story of God's covenantal relationship with Israel. Um, and then the third story, uh, the third level, excuse me, is that we are to, um, we're to look for how they point us to Jesus. Because from, from out of every corner of the Old Testament, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus emerges. I say that to say this. I'm about to read you a story, or at least a part of a, a larger story about King Solomon. And that, that those three levels can be seen in this very story. And I'm going to try to point them out to you as I go. But the, the, the three levels of every Old Testament story, you're going to see in this story. And, and I wanted you to be aware of it, to see um, that this is not just, a, oh, okay, that happened, okay, that, oh, I see. No, ultimately, they are all to take us to the Lord Jesus. And I, I hope to show you that in this story. Let me say one other thing, then we'll read it. This is about Solomon. Now, I think you have enough Old Testament history to know that there, there were three kings. Well, uh, he was the third king. Saul was first, and then David, and this is, Saul, this is David's son. Solomon, who is the king of Israel at this point. Now, let me read you, beginning at verse 20, this, this portion of the story of the years of Solomon's rules. Beginning at verse 20, you follow as I read. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. So Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from Tifsah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side all around him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree, from Dan as far as Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots, and 12,000 horsemen. And these governors, each man in his month, provided food for Solomon and for all who came to Solomon's table. There was no lack in their supply. They also brought barley and straw to the proper place for the horses and steeds, each man according to his charge. 
And God gave Solomon wisdom exceedingly, a great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the men of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sins of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. And he also, he, also he spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. And men of all nations from all kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that endures forever. Guys, um, in terms of sheer geopolitics, mere sheer geopolitics, Israel reached her absolute zenith under the, the, the reign or during the reign of David's son, Solomon. In terms of influence, in terms of military might, in terms of prosperity, in, or any other measuring stick you might want to use. Um, this was the period in which Israel was the unrivaled, the unquestioned leader of this section of the world. Now, that's what this passage wants you to know. It wants you to know something about Israel's glory years. Uh, and it does so, or it teaches you these things by way of, of hyperbole and metonym. Now, the, the, guys, if you've never, you know what a hyperbole is. I mean, you know what speaking hyperbolically means, I think. But there's an example. When he says they were as numerous as the sands uh, on the sea. That's a hyperbole, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, I'm sure that literally there were probably more grains of sand on the, on the beaches of Destin than there were population numbers in Israel. But the, but the, but the author is speaking to you about the, 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 the big population size in Israel. And, and he speaks with a hyperbole. The other thing, uh, when he says they were eating and drinking and rejoicing, that, that is another literary device. It's called, it's called a metonym. Um, uh, maybe you're not as familiar with a metonym. A metonym is, um, is when you, you, you call something not by its name, but by a word or words that are, are not the thing, but they're related or associated to the thing. For instance, if I were to say to you, uh, Hollywood is wicked, <laughs> um, you would know that I'm, I'm referring not to a city. I'm referring to the, to the film industry, you know, um, Hollywood, it's a metonym. Uh, or if I were to say, uh, the Pentagon, uh, had some cutbacks. Um, well, when I'm talking about the Pentagon, I mean, you've seen that building. I'm not talking about the building. You know, I'm not talking about the building. You know, I'm talking about the whole military force of, um, of, of, of this country. That's a metonym. The Pentagon is a metonym for the military uh, force. Well, guys, when, when, the, when the scriptures are describing these things, they're using these literary devices. And by the way, if you were to ever take a course uh, from a secular university on the Bible, these are the kinds of things that they would show you. And then they would make their case about the Bible being another great uh, piece of literary um, uh, 
production from uh, among numerous other great literary accomplishments. Well, I, I beg to differ, and I think many of you do. I, I, I believe this book to be inerrant. I believe it to be the, the very word of God. He didn't pin it, but he inspired it. It's his. Um, but that's what they want. But they would show you these devices. But guys, all this is is um, a, a, an author using the same kind of devices that we do in the liter- in, in, in language, trying to communicate to you this this picture of Israel at her absolute zenith. Um, and 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 did you notice also there was this this, this mention of her boundaries. Did you see that? Uh, from the river, that's the Jordan River, uh, on the east, to Gaza on the, on the west, and then all the way down to Egypt. That's telling you the geographic boundaries of Israel, of, of Solomon's reign, of Solomon's rule. He ruled from all the way up there and all the way down there, and all the way over there and all the way over there. Now, one of the things that's different about that, ladies and gentlemen, is because that happens to be... A fulfillment of a promise. A promise made to Abraham in Genesis 15. (laughs) The land that was promised to Abraham in Genesis 15 is now Israel's. Um, What you're seeing in this passage in 1 Kings 4 is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham. It's the territory... That was promised to Israel and all these subjugated masses and all of these people bringing, uh, you know, taxes and and tribute to Solomon. It's a promise that was fulfilled under the leadership of Solomon. Because, folks, the author of 1 Kings wants you to think about Abrahamic promises Promises made to Abraham. And he wants you to see them as being fulfilled under the rule and reign of, of at this particular juncture in Israel's history. You, I've mentioned the large population and the, and the people as the, as the sands on the sea. Well, that's something that God said to Abraham in Genesis 22. He also said it to Jacob in, in Genesis 32. Or the, uh, the great prosperity... I mean, did you read all of that stuff that was on that table? You know, the, the hundred sheep and the, uh, the gazelles and the 20 cores of this and, the, you know, this for one day. That's a description, ladies and gentlemen, of bounty, of abundance. Um, oh, oh, yes, and that's all the enemies on every side. And it says Judah and Israel was safe. All of those things. By the way, that's another thing that was said to Abraham. It was said to him um, in, in, in one of his one of the promises in Genesis in Genesis fifteen, and then and then in this last thing that is in verse thirty four in our text about all of the people pursuing the wisdom, people coming from everywhere to hear of Solomon's wisdom because he was wiser than anybody else. That too, ladies and gentlemen is a promise that God made to Abraham about Abraham or the nation of Israel being a blessing to all the world. Guys, these are Abrahamic promises fulfilled. The, the climax of Israel's might, Israel's glory, here and now, under the rule of Solomon, a son of David, 
At no time did Israel ever experience greater influence, greater might, greater prosperity than she did under the rule of Solomon. And yet, seven chapters later, we're in in chapter 4, in chapter 11 of that same book, we're told that Solomon began to chase after idols. He, began, he, he married foreign women. And the, and the text in 1 Kings 11 says that he was disloyal to Yahweh. And Israel was never the same. Israel unravels. And all that you have seen described in chapter 4 that I just read to you this morning, it's soon gone and soon forgotten and ultimately Israel is dragged into a Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And if you're somebody that's living during that period, you might say, you might ask, is this the best we got? I mean, is this the best we can do? I mean, is there no, is there no greater king than Solomon? <laughs> Jesus answered that question in Matthew 12. You remember verse 42? When he says, there is one greater than Solomon, and I am he. I am the ultimate Solomon. I am the greater than Solomon. I am the one to whom Solomon and his rule pointed. Solomon's rule was temporary. Mine is permanent. It is Jesus who is the greater than Solomon. And by the way, the one greater than Solomon, Jesus, he was also known for a table. And on his table was such abundance and, and the abundance consisted of two items. His broken body and his shed blood. All of the promises of God are fulfilled, not in Solomon, but in the one who was greater than Solomon. The, 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 the Bible says all of the promises of God are yea and amen. They're fulfilled in this one who is greater than Solomon, the better son of David. And, 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 and ladies and gentlemen, because of this one who is better than Solomon, my soul is not temporarily safe. My soul is permanently, everlastingly safe because of his victory over my enemies. My enemies of sin and death. Solomon's rule was short-lived. His rule is everlasting. The wisdom of Solomon, the, 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 the wealth of Solomon, the might of Solomon, they all pale into insignificance. Next to the one who is greater than Solomon. So great was he that all those who yield to his kingship 
or promise, are promised everlasting safety. Folks, um, it is to his table that I invite you. And awaiting you on his table is a bounty that is unparalleled. It's a bounty that consists in only two things. His broken body and his shed blood. I am inviting you to come feast at the table of the one who was greater than Solomon. Let's pray. Our Father, I I do pray that you will show your people once again the great beauties of Christ and him crucified. Might we all leave here not with... um, not with heavier hearts, but with lighter hearts as we remember that all of the promises that you've made to Abraham, all of the promises that you made to David, all of the promises that you made to Jeremiah, all of the promises that you have made to us are fulfilled in Christ and Christ crucified. So, Father, would you stir up the, the, the souls of your people as they feast at the table of the one who has a bounty that lasts forevermore, whose reign is everlasting, and who has defeated once and for all all of the enemies of our soul. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, guys, uh, on one occasion I was uh, criticized because the, the, the criticizer did not think I had properly fenced the table. Let me tell you what that means. The, the Lord's Supper is for the people of God. We don't, we don't care whether you're a member here. We don't care where your membership is. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you are invited here. But if you have not yet embraced that Savior, if you are not yet redeemed, stay away. Thus, the fence... This is for God's people. And God's people in large measure, I think, know that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was at a table. And at that table, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. So do this in remembrance of me.